This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The authors of four separate studies on the economic burden of rare diseases recently collaborated on a piece in Health Affairs calling for concrete steps to address gaps in data that make it difficult to track rare diseases in the healthcare system. Though the authors came to similar conclusions in their reports, they were also stymied by existing data constraints such as a lack of codes for rare diseases, differing data structures of electronic health records, and missed opportunities to gather data through public health surveys. We spoke to Joni Rutter, Acting Director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, and Annie Kennedy, Chief of Policy and Advocacy for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, about the economic burden of rare diseases, the data constraints that limit a complete understanding of the impact they have, and what steps can be taken to improve the availability of patient data. Annie, Johnny, thanks for joining us. It's our pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, we're going to talk about a recent piece in Health Affairs you both co-authored, the series of studies about the economic burden of rare diseases that led to the piece, and recommendations you have to improve our understanding of rare diseases and their impacts on people who have them and their loved ones. I'd like to start with the studies that you each were involved in that led to this. Annie, uh, about a year ago, you and I talked on this podcast about the Every Life Foundation's National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study. Listeners who are interested can go into our archive and look for episode 324. Annie, can you remind listeners what that study was seeking to do? Sure, absolutely. Thank you for having us. So uh, about two years ago, the rare disease community really identified a gap in real data around what the economic impact of living with a rare disease is. And so as a community, we came together to really collect this data. So families who are living with rare diseases certainly understand the costs absorbed by families. And we see in our healthcare bills what the costs to the healthcare system are, but we've never really in an organized way um, really had evidence, real data around this. So we set out to collect what's considered direct cost data. So look at the data in the healthcare system as well as non-medical and indirect data. So look at the impact to caregivers, the productivity losses, what, what it costs to not be able to be at work or to have to manage your healthcare while at work. And also what the costs were to um, 
families who are having to make modifications to their homes or modifications to their cars or pay for things that are prescribed by physicians but aren't covered by their healthcare insurance, what that cost was. So we conducted that study. And what we found was that during calendar year 2019, when we looked at 379 rare diseases, and we can talk later about why that was the number that we looked at. And I'll remind you that um, there are an estimated somewhere between seven and 10,000 rare diseases. So in this study, we're really just scratching the surface of the economic impact. But we found that in 2019, the economic impact or the cost of living with rare diseases in the US was close to a trillion dollars. And what's most significant about that was that the majority of those costs were not the costs in the healthcare system, were not the costs that we're seeing in emergency room visits and provider visits and prescription costs, but were the costs being absorbed directly by families, those indirect costs, those non-medical costs, so the out-of-pocket costs with living with a rare disease. So we were not the only ones though, collecting data. We were really heartened to know that other partners were also looking at this really important need and really important question, um, including um, the NIH. Well, Johnny, you were one of the authors of the Ideas Initiative pilot study that was published in the Orphanet Journal of Rare Diseases. What, what did that study seek to do and what did it find? Yeah, great, great question. And, and I'm so glad Annie went first uh, to, to talk a little bit about her study because it really does dovetail very well with that. And you heard her say that there are over 7,000 rare diseases. And just to remind people about that, um, 7,000 rare diseases, yet each year as, as we're, our ability to sequence more and more individuals, we're finding new diseases every year, even on top of that. So individually, these, the, there are 7,000 rare diseases, but, but collectively they are really common with about 30 million people in the US who have a rare disease. And so, as you heard from Annie on the Every Life Foundation study, the burden of that rare disease is enormous at a societal cost of around $1 trillion. And that's staggering. And, and so we had been thinking about along these same lines in terms of understanding that cost burden. Um, but we didn't really have data to point to until the Every Life study. And, and by that time, we were kind of underway in thinking about how to address it on our own. So um, because rare diseases are as a whole somewhat fragmented um, and, and it's difficult to find rare disease patients within our healthcare system, they're, they're essentially uh, silent in a way because they're, they're very hard to identify. So for us, this was quite a tall order, but we set out to do, to do three things. We wanted to understand the total prevalence of the rare disease population within the U.S.? Can we identify how a given disease is, is sort of codified by a unifying diagnosis or a set of characteristics, for example, for uh, rare diseases? So that was one question. The second question we had was, what are the key data that are needed to understand the natural history of, of rare diseases? How many people have enough data to characterize that, that natural history of those rare diseases? Can we identify trends, for example, uh, if, if rare disease patients need to see a variety of physicians within the healthcare system. Can that be something that we can count on to identify rare diseases within the population without having anything else to go on? Uh, 
or can we go on tests that are ordered, for example? So that natural history of disease was the second question we were interested in. And then the third question was very much along the lines of what Annie and the Every Life study has, has done, and that is, what's the cost of care for rare disease patients? And we wanted to understand that um, total cost of rare diseases in the U.S., both as sort of a, an aggregate and, and also sort of at, at an individual rare disease cost level. So we selected about 14 different representative rare diseases within four different healthcare systems to analyze using uh, uh, sort of uh, the, these sorts of ways to identify rare disease patients within those within those groups. And we wanted to get a sense of that diagnostic odyssey, um, how long it takes for patients to get diagnosed with a rare disease, for example. So if we found them in the healthcare system, we could use that that date in time and go back five or 10 years to understand what their diagnostic journey really looked like. And we wanted to get a good sense of that. And we were able to use the, those data then to kind of get a, a handle on those three main questions that we were seeking to ask. And what were the findings? Well, we we took those rare disease patient records and, and compared them to matched control groups within the same systems. And in this way, we were able to quantify the and evaluate the direct medical costs of those rare diseases across the health systems that we looked at. And we, what we found was that when we compared those groups, rare diseases were three to five times higher in direct medical costs. And that translated into about a $400 billion price tag for those direct costs in medical care per year. So we took a completely different approach, coming at this problem almost directly opposite as how Annie and Every Life did their study. But we came up with a, a number that was very similar um, in those direct medical care costs. Um, we were not able to evaluate the indirect and other costs that, that Every Life did. But as they indicated, that total cost is about $1 trillion. And um, what was striking to me is that this is really, a, 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 this just, signifies that it's a very clear public health issue uh, for these this this burden of cost for rare disease patients. As both of you sought to undertake these studies, how hampered were you by the lack of available data? Were there things you were unable to do or found difficult getting greater clarity on because of data challenges? Um, as I mentioned, when so when we our methodology included an analysis of direct cost data, um, but very importantly included a survey that we conducted to the broad rare disease community. And to develop that survey, we worked with our patient advocacy organization partners to identify what data elements we would include in that survey, and then we disseminated the survey through hundreds of patient advocacy organization partners to the broad community. And that's how we collected the data around the non-medical and indirect costs. Um, we then asked people when they took the survey to identify what rare disease they had been diagnosed with. So that when we did the data analysis, we correlated the name of that diagnosis with a corresponding what's called ICD code or the International Classification of Disease. And an ICD code for those who are listening is a code, I like to think of it like a hashtag that is assigned to um, medical devices and medical conditions. Um, and then when you go to the doctor, you have codes for everything, you have code for high blood pressure, there's a code for pregnancy, there are codes for COVID. 
um, and it follows you in your healthcare system. So whether you're in registries or if you're in different electronic health records, you go to your primary doctor or the hospital, that code can then follow you and connect your records to one another. So we asked people, we correlated their rare disease with their um, direct medical data. One of the limitations though of our study and other studies like this is that we don't have ICD codes for all of the rare diseases. So as we've said, there are an estimated seven, depends on the citation you use, seven to 10,000 rare diseases. We have ICD codes for about 500 of those rare diseases. So that means that we can't pull data within the electronic health records and registries and surveillance systems in the US for more than those diseases because we don't have codes to pull them. Those data systems can't talk to each other using that international classification system. So that's one of the really important limitations of this work. Um, what that really translates to is that if you have a rare disease that does not yet have its own distinct code, essentially within those systems, the way we query this data and we do these analyses, you're invisible. We can't track you in this way. Um, so that was a really important limitation. And one of the policy items that we actually point to um, in this health affairs piece is that we really need to do better as far as assigning codes to rare diseases and rare disease communities. Johnny, how about your experience? Were there challenges with the data that, that limited your ability to, to get access to what you would need? Absolutely, there, there were, unfortunately. And, and I will just echo everything that, that Annie has said about the ICD codes. I think that that's just a, a, a big critical factor in our inability to, to analyze these data um, in a in a way that's that's streamlined and 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 fairly straightforward to do, but I'll say too that there are there's sort of a widely varying percentage of rare diseases in different healthcare systems, which also makes it difficult to understand their their true prevalence and so how they're even with ICD codes and and if they don't have ICD codes um, that that difference in prevalence across healthcare systems really just adds to the variability and the uncertainty of the data that we're looking at. And perhaps a bigger issue is with the data itself. And in electronic records um, and the data included in them, there's not always, uh, these data aren't always in structured fields. Uh, ICD code is a structured field, which are, and, and, and since data aren't always in those structured fields, then we can't get that consistency that's needed for understanding and comparing the data across those fields. So even though if there's there's classified, uh, there may be classified under broader unspecified terms or, or other types of codes that could be used, it still makes finding rare disease patients very difficult. Even in unstructured data, like those within, within physician notes or describing a test, that are not amenable for simple extraction from an, an electronic health record, um, those unstructured uh, data are, really are very difficult to be able to compare as well across different studies. And so this limits the ability to identify those rare disease diagnoses. So, so there's a variety of things that really impact our ability to look at these data. And, and what then we, what, I think part of what we're missing here then too is our ability to understand those timelines between when a symptom 
or a disease uh, comes on or the onset of those symptoms or diseases, that compared to the, the accurate diagnosis that needs to be obtained. And so understanding that timeline between symptom onset and diagnosis might be highly variable, and we're just not able to capture that within the system. So again, these are just quite uh, quite a few um, issues within the data that make it very difficult to to pull these rare patients uh, within the systems out to really understand very clearly the bigger picture that's going on. In health affairs, the two of you recently joined authors of other similar studies. How did that piece come together? What was the conversation? We actually, Every Life reached out to the authors of these other studies as we were learning that the studies were in progress um, and saw that the timelines for the release of the studies um, were actually well aligned. Um, you know, economic cost studies are really important for a number of reasons. One is that cost estimates can be used to prioritize policy. And we at Every Life are a policy organization and wanted to ensure that this data that was being generated could be used by the broader rare disease community to help inform policy work by rare disease uh, partners. The, it's really important to us that the members of the rare disease community, the individual families that spent so much time contributing to um, our study, informing the data that we were collecting, and then sitting down and you know, each family who participated in our survey spent close to an hour contributing um, their experiences, their financial, reflecting their financial experience into our survey. And that's not for naught, that's not just for a publication, that's really to move the needle so that we can really ease the impact of living with a rare disease ultimately increase the resources that are going into um, research and infrastructure for rare disease in the U.S., and then really inform some of the policy work that's happening. And so, you know, the other thing that's really important as we look at these cost estimates is that it helps us to understand where the specific economic cost drivers are, so that as we look at those policy levers, we know where to push and pull on them. And so one of the things that we were seeing as we were looking at, so the first of the reports to come out was ours, the Everlife report. And then um, I believe the GAO study and the NCAT study came out really close together. And, um, and then the study that uh, Sheldon Garrison released um, came out, I think right before those two did. And we were really gratified to see, we had all used very different methodology, but the numbers, were really aligned and were the same. So we were validating one another's work and really showing that this was the experience of the rare disease community. There is a public health crisis, but there was also a really clear theme and Dr. Rudder just spoke to it. Um, one of the things we saw in our study through the collection of the um, data from the community was the diagnostic odyssey in rare disease. And one of the things that families reported to us, um, we had worked with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network to incorporate some questions to understand what that diagnostic odyssey looks like in rare disease. And we found through our survey that on average, the mean for respondents was 6.3 years between the time they first reported symptoms to a provider until they received a confirmed diagnosis of their rare disease, 6.3 years 
and that diagnostic odyssey included visits to 17 clinical specialists. And those visits included ER visits, out-of-state visits, hospital admissions, and on and on and on. And so we can see a correlation directly to the direct cost that we saw in our study and where there are cost drivers in rare disease that we can then really dig further and see where there are opportunities to reduce those costs because of the technology we already have to do better, to advance diagnostic tools, to increase reimbursement for diagnostic testing and genetic counseling, and overall reduce the barriers to diagnostics and follow-up care. So for all of these reasons, it was incredibly important to us to pull these studies together and start to point to some of the common threads so that we could really push some policy opportunities. We see some real low-hanging fruit to really make vast improvements for our rare disease community. I'd like the two of you to walk us through the recommendations in the Health Affairs article. But before you do that, though, Joni, uh, I'm sorry, Annie, you had spoken about ICD codes a, a moment ago. I'm, I'm wondering if one of you could demystify those for us a bit and explain how a rare disease actually gets an ICD code. There is a very formalized process for the establishment of an ICD code. Um, this is actually, ICD codes are actually um, in the U.S. done in coordination with the WHO or the World Health Organization, but in the U.S., it's through the CDC or the Division of Health Statistics, and there is a committee um, that has another, you know, we love our acronyms, or the ICDCM, um, and they have a very difficult job of overseeing all of the codes for all medical procedures and all diagnoses. And it is actually a very technical process where all codes have to be alphabetized and indexed and really married to one another and make a lot of sense. So if a code, if you have a category of codes, and so let's use muscular dystrophy as an example, you can have a broad category of codes and then subcodes within those. And so if you have a rare disease, some rare disease, rare diseases fall into broad categories and need to have more granular, more specific codes. And some disorders have no codes at all. And so you could use COVID as a perfect example. You do have diseases that are new to the population and need an entirely new code. And there are times when you have a rare disorder that for a long time has been a part of an umbrella or a basket code and warrants a more specific or refined code. And if you are looking to do that, oftentimes this is a process that's led by, in the rare community, patient advocacy organizations that work to develop the evidence um, to look at the data that's available, oftentimes through patient registries, economic data, and to develop a nomination. And we actually, Every Life, led an effort about a year ago to develop um, a roadmap to an ICD code. We actually put together resources, templates for communities, um, nomination um, templates so they could see what other communities had done previously. We gathered tools and guidance from all the federal agencies that work with this, and it's all available on our website. So that if you are a patient advocacy organization or any partner looking to nominate um, either a new or a refined code, you have some place to start because there really hadn't been any guidance up until that point. And we just really 
looked to develop a resource for partners so they knew where to start. What was the recommendation you were making about ICD codes and what would you like to see happen? So what we set out to do was really create a resource for organizations that were on the path to trying to create a code. At right now, the way it stands is, you know, we have a generous rare disease community. Organizations call an organization that's already done it and learn through word of mouth and experiences for one another. We wanted to have something that was a little more formalized for people to start with. So that was the first thing we did. Along the way, though, we did learn um, of some good practices. I won't call them best practices because we just learned what had worked for some folks, where the sort of the minefield had been, um, and then did work with some partners to develop some um, suggestions for how we could do better. One of the things to us that seems like a healthy start is we know that we have at least 7,000 rare diseases and about 500 codes. Um, we would really like to see the federal agency partners come together, all of the federal agencies that work in this space and have rare expertise, to come to some agreement on what codes should exist. We're not saying there should be 7,000 codes, but we can do better than 500 and to update that listing so that we have um, a listing of codes that is more reflective of the current lived experience and current science in rare disease. And we actually um, led some appropriations language around this um, last year to really um, urge the federal agencies to come together so that we could reduce the rocks in the backpacks of patient groups so that it's not on the patient groups to have to do all this work themselves. And we could really update that listing to be more reflective of the number of diseases we know people are now currently uh, experiencing. You also call for enhancing the collection of rare disease patient data. What specifically would you like to see done there? Uh, thank you, Annie. And uh, I just, I really enjoy how you talk about the ICD codes because I think that um, there, there is, these are tractable issues that I think that we can start to, to really tackle and, and codes are one thing, but in terms of collecting data and information on rare disease patients, that, that is another thing. And, and there are a couple of things here that I wanted to point to. Um, one, for example, in, in, in just larger cohort-based types of research that's conducted uh, across uh, the country and, and things that we, we support, I think one of the areas that we can enhance our understanding of rare diseases is, is capturing additional information on rare diseases in those broader kinds of, of research-based cohorts. Our understanding of rare diseases and their intersection with other health outcomes, for example, or environmental influences is, is really largely unexplored. And I think this is one area that we can continue to, to make headway on. Another issue is around this sort of um, the natural history of rare diseases. And I've talked about this a little bit before, but understanding that clinical course of rare disease is critical for helping with earlier diagnosis and that diagnostic odyssey that we've been talking about. And in this way, you can start to understand, for example, for any given patient with a rare disease, their clinical features, their major medically relevant milestones or their characteristics or, or disease modifying therapies that might be available, um, how billing costs are mapped over those uh, electronic health records to get a more honed understanding of that natural course of disease and how to spot it, how to treat it, and how to align those costs. 
And part of that, that issue then there is to harmonize the rare disease coding in the healthcare system. That's such a big need that's, that's really woefully inadequate. Um, and, and so I think that in, uh, many times we turn to the community to really think about those practical solutions. And one of the networks that we have that, that uh, NCAT supports is the, the Rare Disease Clinical Research Network or the RDCRN. And this is a network of, of uh, 20 or so uh, groups that are studying a variety of different rare diseases and thinking about that, the rare disease patient data, how to collect it, and, and perhaps would be a fantastic group to also think about um, uh, how, how to prioritize uh, uh, tackling the coding issues as well. Another recommendation has to do with expanding access to advanced diagnostic tools. Why does this matter in the context of rare disease data and understanding the the landscape um i'll perhaps i'll take this one and then annie uh, i'll turn it over to you I, you know this is this is an interesting one in in contrast to the current approach to diseases that are based on sort of the clinical presentation um the rare diseases are so important to really understand uh, sort of even going beyond that clinical presentation because sometimes that is misleading. And so the concept of things like looking at at um, at uh, perhaps how these diseases manifest, can we get an understanding of even perhaps there's a shared molecular etiology that's contributing to the disease focus. And um, so thinking about how we can use sequence technologies to start to identify and um, and diagnose particular rare diseases. That's 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 one thing that we're trying to do in terms of the diagnostic side. I think the other key issue here is about identifying them within the healthcare system and using tool, new tools and new resources for identifying within the electronic health records for physicians who are seeing rare disease patients. Are there ways in which we can enhance the uh, electronic medical records so that that uh, there are triggers within the system that will alert physicians whether or not a patient's been seeing uh, several doctor, multiple doctors before seeing that particular doctor, or if there are particular uh, terms in their medical record, those basket terms that 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 Annie mentioned before, are so critical for identifying um, issues where there might be a rare disease patient in front of the physician, but it's not necessarily that obvious. And so, can we identify and and use new tools that perhaps take advantage of artificial intelligence and machine learning to identify those types of um, rare disease patients faster and better, and and get them to a diagnosis? faster and better. So I think those are some of those ways in which we're thinking about advancing those diagnostic tools. You also call for supportive registries, natural history studies, and other projects like that. How fundamental a role do these types of studies play in understanding the rare disease landscape? I would say, I'll just jump in. I mean, Dr. Rutter, I'm sure can talk about this all day. So I'll give a short answer and maybe hand it off to her. Um, I would say they're critical and they're foundational, not just in understanding rare diseases, but also in moving clinical trials forward and therapeutic development forward. So, you know, it's how as rare disease communities, we find one another and understand our diseases better. And we understand um, the progression of the diseases and understand subpopulations within our diseases. 
um, and the nuances within our communities are all understood within our registries and our natural history studies. Then as we're seeing improvements be made either through treatment interventions or product, uh, products that are being developed, um, that's where we begin to see that evolution and then understand um, how that's benefiting our communities. So there, it's foundational to the community that we have um, these registries and these natural histories stood up, but it's also in some communities, the, the existence of the natural history studies will be probably the only way we're able to conduct clinical trials and be able to really design trials that will make product development possible. Uh, it's such a critical point, and, and it, the clinical trials is certainly um, uh, something we could talk a lot more about. But, it, you know, the other piece of it, too, is that we, the more we understand about those natural history of the diseases um, and those natural history studies, they they can help us also find ways which to prevent misdiagnosis of rare disease, which we know happens quite a bit. And and for rare diseases that do get misdiagnosed, because we don't have those ways that that natural history data or ways to classify them well in our systems, then that can create um, issues in terms of inappropriate care because of th those misdiagnoses or a lack of, of targeted treatments that could modify the disease in a in a given window. But if that disease isn't picked up when it when it needs to have that modifying treatment, then that window could close and those treatments would no longer be effective. So these are also other critical issues. I think that understanding the natural history of disease is so important for us to uh, map these uh, issues out much more clearly. Finally, you call for the enhancement of electronic health records structures to facilitate research. Is, has this been kind of a missed opportunity? Can, can you explain that? Oh, uh, I'll start here on uh, perhaps. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is a missed opportunity in a way. And it's also just a it's it's a bigger problem than just in rare diseases. This is a problem for for all of healthcare. Um, and Annie brought up the the issue of COVID-19 not having an ICD code. And I think this is this is a, a great case in point for uh, in the United States. There is no way to standardize our electronic health records for research or to help us make informed clinical decisions. And uh, this was a need that that NCATS had identified early on in, in the COVID in the pandemic. And so we created a, a national COVID-19 co cohort collaborative, something that we call N3C. But it's it's working with the Clinical and Translational Science Award program and the Idea State. Uh, clinical and translational research program, along with a variety of others. And we've amassed now 11 million electronic health records from COVID positive and matched controls to study clinical outcomes of COVID-19. And this was a huge undertaking because of the lack of standardization across the EHRs. For example, one hospital might collect height and information or height information, for example, in inches, and another hospital might collect it in centimeters. And you can see that it, it's a problem if you don't standardize those two. So you need to collect it in one metric. And this problem highlighted with certainly with the, the COVID pandemic, but um, because it didn't have an ICD code in 2020, now it does. But now you can imagine that 7,000 diseases, most of which don't have an ICD code, those standards are critical to be able to have our health systems be able to talk to one another. So there is this, uh, I think, this big need in electronic health 
record systems and structures to be able to start to build up that infrastructure for doing more research within those types of data that can be very uh, helpful for clinical research. The recommendations seem reasonable, but what's unclear to me is who you're addressing them to, who has the power to make these changes or, or order them? The intention behind these studies was multifaceted. The intention behind this doing the blog was to make sure that policymakers, meaning people on Capitol Hill, um, appropriators, um, people in federal agencies are really understanding and the core themes in these studies, and that it wasn't just one um, researcher, one study that found this data, that we're really seeing some core themes, um, and we really wanted to pull all these pieces together. So I think individually, probably each group will probably be doing individual things with these studies, but as a community, the rare disease community wanted to come together and make sure that policymakers um, see all of this pulled together. Um, it is no coincidence that we're moving into Rare Disease Week um, and we will have um, probably close to a thousand advocates going to Capitol Hill um, in just about two weeks. Um, and the Every Life Foundation and Rare Disease Legislative Advocates are helping to coordinate a lot of that. And these are issues that really hit at the core foundation of our rare disease community's experience. And so a lot of us in the rare disease community have found this data to be very validating. Um, this really reflects the lived experience of members of our community. And while these numbers are staggering, when you think about them and you look at them, they're not shocking to families who are living with rare diseases. Um, and what's really important to us as we meet with members of Congress in a few weeks, and as we set our policy agenda here in Congress, is that we really, while the numbers are important, that we're able to look beyond the numbers and understand that these reports really shed critical light on the challenges and difficult choices that are faced by millions of families. And that is we're having conversations about where our federal funding priorities should be, um, that it's not acceptable that a parent's ability to care for their child should be dependent on their finances. And so what we're really seeing here in the data is that time and again, that happens here in the US. And so what we really did was knit together some opportunities and some policies that could be implemented in 2022 that would help alleviate this really crushing financial impact being shouldered by families in the rare disease community. And do these recommendations carry cost implications? And, and if so, how should they be funded? So we are also, we do appropriations work here at the Everlife Foundation. We have not had scores placed on any of these. We don't have a legislative proposal assigned to any of these. Many of these actually would probably streamline costs um, in many places. So um, there isn't, I think the short answer is there isn't a score. Um, but I do think if we look at some of these individual policy proposals, we would probably find that there would be a cost savings associated with reducing a diagnostic odyssey of six years and 17 specialists and having um, applying some of the existing technologies to reduce that odyssey and ensure that the treatments that are available to patients were made available at the point of care when the first symptoms presented, rather than sending somebody on a heartbreaking and expensive um, diagnostic 
odyssey. So I think we can sort of start to see the solutions lining up and we can move beyond those back of the envelope calculations that we've been doing for so long. And people, I'm sorry, Johnny, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add to that too. I, I, I loved, I loved Annie's answer there too. And, and I, I think that um, in terms of, of how should they be funded, you know, one of the things that, that, that we've done at NCATS, we think we've thought about the diagnostic odyssey quite a bit and NCATS just made awards to provide funding for multidisciplinary work on artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches that incorporated genomics and, and clinical expertise uh, to, to, we're really looking for diagnostic strategies that can be applicable to a broad array of rare diseases and be able to be adopted or adapted to frontline healthcare providers. And so we're funding research now to be able to incorporate the, this type of thinking in the broader um, healthcare systems that, that, that we support. So that is one area that we are um, actively uh, supporting. But what can members of the rare disease community do if they've read the article and, and agree with the, the recommendations? How can they add their voices to the call? I love this question. Um, so members of the rare disease community can um, find us on our Every Life website and um, also join us through our rare disease legislative advocates. So most immediately, we have Rare Disease Week. We have many events during Rare Disease Week. NIH is hosting a rare disease day, which I'll hand off in just a second so Roberto can talk about it. Um, and it's about the collective voice and priorities of the rare disease community. And then hundreds of patient advocacy organizations are also lifting their priorities during um, those events and during that week. And so we just invite all members of the rare disease community and your loved ones and friends and colleagues join with us so that we make sure that people understand that rare disease isn't somebody else's concern or somebody else's problem, but it is a public health issue that we all care about and all prioritize. And I'll just add too um, that as, as Annie mentioned, it is Rare Disease Day at the NIH on February 28th. And, and it is an event that anyone can sign up to join or hear more about sort of what's out there and how to get involved. Um, at this meeting, people from across the community come together to share their stories, to spotlight progress, and to talk about what more we need to do. Um, and I will also say that NCATS has a rare disease page, ncats.nih.gov backslash rare dash diseases. And here you can find information about findings, resources, clinical trials, funding opportunities, and staff to connect with. For other questions, and so I, between Every Life and uh, NCATS, I think there are a variety of uh, resources for people to get connected with, and and there are other resources out there as well. Uh, so, Johnny Rudder, acting director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, and Annie Kennedy, chief of policy and advocacy for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. Joni, Annie, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. 
You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.